Hi, my name is Benjamin Cretune. You're listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going wonderfully. How about yourself? Yeah, it's, uh, what, what can I say? It's March. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, here we are. It is, uh, we're closing in on a year of, uh, of shutdown from the pandemic. How about that? Yeah, it's, it's really true. We, uh, looking at maybe four or five months before things, I think, open up a little bit more. We're still like 1500 plus, you know, new cases a day here. We're a long way from, from where we have to be to get out we're of the like purple tier. We're like 5,000, 5,000 oh. in, uh, California. Uh, per day? I was I was looking at I was looking at Los Angeles. Yeah, Los Angeles. I think we're only like around fifteen hundred now. So. Oh really? Oh that that's actually heartening because uh, for most of the pandemic, L.A. was shouldering two thirds of California's COVID cases. So it's nice to know that we're maybe doing less than half. Yeah, I, I wake up in the morning and uh, instead of looking at the news or anything, the first thing I do is Google coronavirus California and also coronavirus Florida, where my family is, and coronavirus Ohio, where Alicia's family is, just to kind of see where it's all at. Around the time I caught coronavirus, we were between 40 and sometimes 65,000 cases per day. Mm. And now we're at about 10% of that, which sounds promising, except when you think about it, when we were having those numbers in like July, they were terrifying to us. It's just like the frog in the water as it's slowly turned up in temperature. We're just used to thousands and thousands of people getting COVID. And in fact, we're like thankful that it's just thousands and thousands and not hundreds of thousands in our own state every week. <sighs> yes, it, it has improved quite a bit. Uh, yeah, today's testing looks like about 1,400. Or sorry, not testing, uh, new cases. New cases, I'm just looking at the new case average. And that's just LA, that's just right here. So that's not, you know, statewide. It's not Southern California. I know that's much, much higher stuff, but I'm just looking at LA County and because, you know, I'm self-centered because that's where I'm at. Yeah. So I'm just looking I'm just looking at like, you know, how deadly is it next door? That's, uh, that's what I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a year of that. But you are right. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. We all know people who have been vaccinated at this point. The numbers are going down and hopefully by the summer we'll be uh, doing something approximating a caricature of what real life used to be like. And maybe one of those things will be going to movie theaters to, to watch movies. Although I suspect if we're doing that, we will be doing it wearing masks. Uh, I think so. I think masks are with us for quite a while. So, you know, all, all of you people who think like, whew, got the vaccine, time to throw away this mask. Uh, I think you're going to need a mask for, for quite a while. Yeah, you gotta, you're going to have to pony up that whatever, you know, 10 bucks for a five pack of surgical masks. Big mask is going to make out pretty well for the next uh, year or so. But <laughs> for, uh, for sure. <laughs> But uh, people are uh, getting back to shooting. I'm heartened to say that a producer friend of mine posted a thing on Facebook about she just wrapped up a feature and there were zero COVID cases on her shoot. And the picture of her was her wearing a very fashionable COVID mask. So people are shooting. People are, you know, our industry is, uh, I won't say chugging along like a freight train, but maybe limping along like, uh, you know, me pretending I'm in a marathon. <laughs> are you planning on running a marathon? 
No, no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> well, Ben, we got a great show today. We've got Benjamin Krachun on the show. He, of course, is the director of photography of Promising Young Woman, which I'm uh, was... so jealous you got to do this interview, by the way. It, and I think you did it while I was in the middle of my COVID misadventure. Uh, I, uh, I did. I did. Yeah. All, all of those things are true. And Benjamin Krachun, of course, shot Promising Young Woman. And if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's totally worth buying uh, on Amazon. I know it's available on Amazon and YouTube for about 20 bucks. And uh, what a delight. What a great movie. I think that... Um, <laughs> A delight. I think that it's it is the, it is, the, it is it is the darkest darkest movie. It's so dark. You, you make it sound like it's like uh, it, you know Mary Poppins. No, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful movie. It's not a. It's, it's, it's not. It's a brilliant. I, I love. I really loved it. I think it's a great film. But it is. It is like a. It's dark, 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 yeah. dark movie. So it, well done. Noir-ish. So well acted. Yeah. So well written and just gorgeous to look at. Uh, well, we'll get the interview in just a moment, but uh, Ben, it's time for our close focus. What uh, What's going on in the world right now that's not a pandemic and something to do with this industry? I think it's significant when yet another movie studio comes online with their own streaming service, kind of a walled garden of their product that we are to uh, pay a monthly fee for, you know, Netflix style. And this month... Are you talking about MGM? <laughs> I'm talking about Paramount Plus, which took over uh, the mantle of CBS All Access, which CBS All Access was like the first TV network that created its own stream, standalone streaming service and charged for it, um, you know, followed by Peacock, uh, which is NBC and Universal. But Paramount Plus, much like HBO Max, much like Peacock, offers tons and tons of TV shows, movies, and it has a number of networks, including BET, Comedy Central, I believe Showtime is on there. It's a pretty comprehensive chunk of entertainment that you can get your hands on there. Let let me ask you a question, though. When it switched from CBS All Access to now Paramount Plus, did you get some sort of extra feature, or is it really just a branding change? Is it just like they changed the name, or was there some sort of upgrade? I mean, like, I did not have a thorough catalog of everything that was on CBS All Access nor Paramount Plus, but having poked around in the app, it looks like there's a lot more movies. If there aren't actually more movies than there were in CBS All Access, they're certainly putting them forward Mm -hmm. for you. It's laid out uh, in a similar enough way to HBO Max and Peacock. But I do wonder if there's ever going to be some kind of coalescence of all these services in a way that just kind of makes it easier to, like, if I wanted to watch something on Peacock and then as soon as it was over, I wanted to watch something on Paramount Plus, I'm going to have to quit out of Peacock and then go over to Paramount Plus. And I, and I keep wondering if this, if some kind of an aggregator or some kind of a service, you know, I think Apple TV is something that's set up to do that, where you're kind of never leaving that service and you can kind of pop around into any of these and watch whatever you want to watch. It's a serious first world problem to be like, oh my God, I have to, I have to I've hit the home button. i got an app right now. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I but, have to hit uh, the menu you know. button twice. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it's not the end of the world. For my father, this is the most confusing thing that's ever happened in television history. And my father's not an untechnical person. He just, it, it, he just doesn't quite get it. And I think that it's for a lot of viewers, it's a big adjustment to go from the cable model to this. Uh, I think when I heard that like HBO Max was going to be offering, you know, all this stuff from Warner Brothers specifically, 
And I believe they were the first studio to get into this game as a studio. I was like, well, are we going to end up having like one of these for Sony and one of these for Paramount and one of these for Fox? And the answer is probably, yeah, yeah, that's, we're, we're, we're headed down that road. And for those of us who were used to like going on HBO and they would have movies from a number of studios, uh, we're all done with that. <laughs> or I, I wouldn't say we're all done with that, but we're heading out of that world. Who knows? You could see the FXX. You could see the ESPN Ocho. You can start seeing all the other channels, too, that might end up with their with their own thing. So anyone with a crystal ball has to be kind of looking out there and saying, like, well, for independents who want to do the same thing, it already kind of is happening to a certain extent on places like YouTube or Vimeo uh, and other sorts of festival style uh, paywall access type of stuff. But it's only really a matter of time before someone with some pockets or maybe a couple of sponsors, maybe like it'll go back to the era of soap operas where Johnson and Johnson or whoever it might be just decide we're going to have our own entertainment division and we're going to have our own paywall or we're going to have our own system and we're going to sell soap. We're going to sell whatever it is. And they start getting into the content business and they completely brand all the stuff that's that's going on Procter and Gamble I know is you know really really big in the uh, daytime television world and how long before uh, that happens in streaming and people you know in this over-the-top market where large corporations decide you know what uh, we're gonna bring this all in-house or we're gonna not rely on traditional players to to, to do this and if you really want to have your content brought to you by Doritos or whatever that that brand might be uh, who knows they might decide that we're gonna put forth the stuff that nobody else is putting forward at least not like this and we know our customers we know our fans we know what they want uh, it's kind of the Wild West who knows what's gonna happen you know who I nominate is gonna do that first if they haven't already done it Hallmark Hallmark hmm. makes four billion Christmas movies a year, all with the same script. And uh, they just they just reshoot it with different actors. And they have a loyal fan base, and they're, uh, I'm assuming, cash-rich enough to do something like that because those movies must make them some money. And I bet if you just put up nothing but those, if you put up an entire catalog of all the Hallmark Christmas movies, I, I don't know, if you watch enough of those in a row, you'd be like, there is no difference. You, know, you just switch the character names and the professions, but they're all the same damn story but at the same time i feel like you already have a loyal viewership but almost any brand could do that if they wanted to do that Uh, i remember god it was pre-pandemic i was having a conversation with a couple of different dps in the same week at my store might even been like you know within 24 hours of each other and they basically told me the exact same story and you could almost interchange every single detail that the stories that they told me about the movies they were working on except they were completely separate projects and they were even completely separate networks but it was like they were one of them was making low budget features for lifetime the other was low budget features for hallmark but it was like oh yeah we get about this much time we get about these kind of cameras we do this sort of thing and i'm on like the seventh one this year or whatever it was mm. they just like they would keep cranking them out they would make they do a ton of them and they would do like I'm, two at I'm a time. not disparaging yeah. anyone who makes it who makes a living making any kind of movies but I don't I just could not do that well you know uh, I think it's harder for a director than it is for a DP to do that sort of thing you can move pretty easily from, I, I, from I guess so yeah I don't know I think when you tell a DP like hey uh, you know we have uh, 14 days to make this <laughs> sweeping movie and we have to I think they got the, 16 the, days I think it was 16 we, we, we got to cover the streets <laughs> of Burbank with fake snow you're not going to have a hard time finding someone who will say yes to that someone great 
but I think it's also just I, I wouldn't look forward to those 14 days. Sure. I think they do OK, though. I think that sometimes they can get a kit rental and some other things on it to, to make up for for maybe the, the lower budget. And if you can get quantity, if you can get a lot of quantity work, they, you know, I, I can't knock it. I can't knock it. So people need to eat. And, you know, uh, people love those love, you know, stalker movies and Christmas movies. So uh, there you go. I'm OK with the stalker movies, you know, and, and, and the thing is also I feel like if we were to uh, time travel 15 years into the future of the cinematography podcast, mm. you know how w- when we interview people today, a lot of them started out making Red Shoe Diaries or low budget straight to video horror movies or music videos. I think that if you were to flash forward 15 years from now, a lot of the DPs who are going to be the leading DPs started making these kinds of films. Hmm. Could be. Could very well be. Anyway, Uh, we we veered way off, of course, there. (laughs) We sure did. But let's get to the interview with uh, Benjamin Kratun. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Benjamin Kratun, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. You're the cinematographer on the new movie Promising Young Woman. And that's that's really what I, I want to talk to you about today because uh, it's getting a lot of buzz. It's a wonderful film. I super enjoyed it. It's a dark movie, but it's not a dark movie. It, you know, I, I really enjoy dark comedy. I, I really enjoyed everything about this. I think the ending is perfect and we are not going to spoil the ending for our listeners here. Um, really, I want to kind of get into you with uh, about some nuts and bolts and as they say, meat and potatoes about where this movie comes from, how it came together, your involvement in it. And uh, I think I just want to start from the beginning. How did you come to this project? So spring 2018, I uh, got a call about doing like a one day sort of short film. It was going to be presented at a TED talk and Emerald was directing. This was the first time I'd heard of Emerald. And And that's Emerald Fennell, the director? The director, yeah, yeah. So I was sent quite last minute. It was like, can you come and do this thing like one day? And I didn't think too much about it. And I went down there and... um, that's the first time I met Emerald. And we had quite a sort of harmonious shoot day, I would say. And, you know, there was a lot to do. It was like we shot like a three-minute short in a day and we found time to sort of, you know, we, we even like experimented a little bit and found some extra shots and stuff. I remember it being like quite a fruitful day in that sense. And at the time, Emerald did mention that she had a feature project. But like a lot of these things, I went on to another project. Emerald was probably developing more or pitching to even get the money and things like that. And then I didn't hear anything. And then seven months later, I get this email. Emerald's like, hey, Ben, do you want to meet for lunch? I've got like funding to make my movie. Um, And you want to read it? Tell me what you think. Um, At the same time, that year, 2018, like Beast, a film I'd shot, a couple of years previous was released in the cinema. And I think like Emerald really liked that film as well. She was like, there are kind of similarities, I guess, like small ones, like it's a psychological thriller. It's a strong female lead. It has like an ambiguous ending that you might want to discuss. You might want to people talk about at parties or whatever, you know what I mean? And I think that that was important to Emerald because she's very interested in starting and continuing a cultural discussion. and getting into like cultural dialogue, you know what I mean? And I think that was something that's important to think about throughout. So there was those two things. Cleverly, she didn't send me anything else but the script. So there was no lookbook, there was nothing. She just sent me that. And um, I then started, you know, I obviously like researched more about Emerald. I figured, I was like, oh my God, she's like written three novels. She's been an actress since she was 14. She was a showrunner on Killing Eve. 
she's got X amount to make her first movie in America. I was just like, what? This doesn't happen. This isn't the kind of thing that happens like every day. So I was definitely going to that meeting. I knew she was meeting other DOPs. So I was also like, okay, I'm going to put together like a ton of images and stuff that comes to my mind. And like, I have to say like that script was just a total page turner. Everyone, I mean, it reads like it watches. I think like the opening of that script, even the, the conceit of what Cassie does is what most movies are. Like some movies would take that and go like, this, this is my movie. <laughs> and this movie then like takes, you know, it goes into the love story. And then the last 20 pages are just like, what <laughs> just happened? So I was like, when I read that, I have to say that that part of it was definitely the first hook for me. Like that was like, I'd almost try and get the job just to see how to pull this off to see what the audience reaction is going to be to, can you do this? You know what I mean? Because you, you don't read that kind of ending in any Hollywood scripts. Do you know what I mean? No, not, not at all. So, yeah. so it was so exciting in that sense, you know. And then, and then when I went to the meeting, I'd obviously like, as DPs do, or, you know, I had a lot of shady image, like much more darker images, like a lot of like, you know, I had like Gone Girl, Magnolia, like weighty dramas. And I was like, you know, Cassie, she's got in this trauma and then she's living like this and you know and then sort of emerald like passes me over her lookbook and she's like well ben i kind of like wanted to look like this and i like open the lookbook and there's like pink bathrooms and kim novak there's like clueless and like i'm just like oh whoa okay sort of resetting my brain and going like wow this is like amazing and at that point i think that's like the second hook for me i was definitely like this is even more interesting now because the director has such a specific view and that's kind of what you look for i think every time i go to a meeting you're trying to you want specificity all the time because that's what is unique to that story you know because if we're telling the same stories over time then the only things that are changing are what are your view on it or what are how do we now t tell that and Emerald has a very Emerald Fennell view because when you meet her, she's also like that. Mm. She would have she had her wearing a pink top and her nails were done and she's very she is she lives in that world and in a way you know and she loves Britney Spears and all these things are quite upfront with her. She's very and she's sort of like I mean she's incredibly intelligent and she has like the darkest sense of humor. I, I mean almost like it was like at points you're just like oh my god that's seriously dark. So all of these things just made a package that was like, I really want to get on this picture, you know. Um, there was something, there's a key thing there. And the key thing, I guess, there is that, which is very clever, which is why Emerald had this lookbook. And she was like, because I don't want to, she was like, you know, Ben, we don't want to signpost what is going to happen in this movie or what this movie is. And that's kind of like really, like it wanted to disguise in plain sight in the same way that you're watching a movie where Cassie is in disguise and playing different roles even at night, the form of this film, and that's how our discussions began, were with that. And the form of the film would take on the same mode almost as Cassie. So you, you definitely do, hopefully do not see what's coming. Uh, I agree. At that latter part. A hundred percent. And that really comes through hearing, hearing you talk about that now, that the whole movie is almost in disguise. I mean, no offense to movies of the week. It could have been played in the, uh, the movie of the week style, which is very dark and very heavy handed and very lifetime. It could have been played in a way that 
we've all seen it before. We've all we've all seen these scenes. Watching this, there is a life and a perspective that is unique into itself. And when you combine the dark subject matter with, I want to say, a modern film noir aesthetic, and I really feel like that's kind of what you captured here. It's, it feels very noir, even though there's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, bright colors and I'm not going to say high key lighting, but let's say uh, less contrast than you might expect for a story that that's that's going this way. There's a fun aspect to the dark and the noir tendencies that are kind of permeated throughout the whole thing. When you did finally start getting into maybe the lookbook or the style conversations. And I know you said pink was a, a reoccurring, like it was a theme almost in here. Where does that design aesthetic come from? And can you talk a little bit about how you narrowed down to finding this pop sensibility in what I would say is is sort of a modern noir? Yeah, I'm glad you said the, the fun element, because this was another thing that and what we spoke about early on, which was that, you know, we want to make like a really taut thriller. It is really dark underneath. But what we are presenting should be a fun, enjoyable popcorn movie. You know what I mean? And that was really important for Emerald because that's also the movies that she loves, you know, and that we all love. And it is kind of like such a clever stealth move on her part. I think like where, the, you know, we matched up that day with like an image of Nicole Kidman in To Die For or there was a couple from like The Virgin Suicides and things like that. So I knew that it was going to play in that kind of soft, pink, pop style, if you like. And then I also knew that Nancy Steiner was going to be on board, the costume, amazing costume designer, who I've like, I also had an image from Julianne Moore in Safe, another movie I totally love, and a movie where she is completely kind of isolated, becomes completely isolated. So I think there's all those colors. I looked at like Michael Perry's lookbook. So I knew that they were gonna be playing these blues and soft tones in the home and in the cafe because that's where she's safe. And maybe at night we could really heighten these sort of neons and things like that. So it, it all kind of was this combination and it kind of came together. But I also wanted to instill, like I was very keen, we can also get into that, into shooting it anamorphic that was something I've seen very early on. That's perfect. Let me actually jump in right there. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very obviously a, an anamorphic movie. It plays out in widescreen format. Let's do the housekeeping. Can you t tell us a little bit about the camera and lens and the nuts and bolts here? Okay, so the bit of the nuts and bolts, yeah, there's like, well, I shot it on Alexa, the Alexa Mini or classic Alexa Mini, mainly because A, I'd shot a lot of movies on that camera already. I knew how it worked and I knew the sensor quite well. And I think like the other thing to keep in mind here is we were making a movie in 23 days with, you know, minimal prep. There was going to be, the page count was, it's a single camera shoot. There's quite a big page count and we've got quite a large cast of day players who are going to come in and we're going to have to nail those every day. You can't go back and shoot anything else on a 23 day schedule. So I was like, I'll stick with that camera. And then I had this thing where I was like, I really think it should be anamorphic for many reasons. There was like discussions I had with Emerald that were about, you know, she's into Greek mythology. There's like, she's, it's called, she's called Cassandra in the movie. There's the whole avenging angel. It almost plays out in some sometimes like a fairy tale. It's a fantasy in a way. And it's also a step away from reality. You look at like the production design, you look at like the costume. So I was like, it's perfect for anamorphic. And anamorphic is also like, you're watching a movie. You go to the cinema and it's like, a movie's on. You know what I mean? I think <laughs> yes. that step, but that step, that, that's important because 
and I, of course, Spherical's beautiful. I've shot tons of movies on Spherical, but I wanted it not, you didn't want to feel that this was this real world in a way. And then that filters into the discussion of like, well, you've got this wide frame. Where are we going to put Cassie in this wide frame and why? You know what I mean? And then they, you start this, you can, because I love film form, like I'm obsessed with it. I think Emerald is as well. This was another way that we kind of connected. You know, she's obsessed with Hitchcock. Uh, she's seen them all. She like, and the tension that's created. And she was really like for pushing the form, which I think is key to also when you're making a low budget movie to trying to get it to stand out in a world where we watch so much stuff and there's so much material everywhere. You know what I mean? So we had very decisive ideas about Cassie and we would, to be honest, I love to play a camera to be as subjective and come from the character. So you'll notice at very key moments, the first time she hears the name Al Munro mm -hmm. is the first time you go into a close-up on her face. That's sort of 20 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. The first time that she mentions to Alison Brie, Madison, played by Alison Brie, do you remember what happened to Nina? We start moving. And it's very subtle. You know, these aren't things I don't want people to sort of pick up on out of that much, but it's a kind of, you know, there's definitely something brewing and something going on and this her mission has started you know uh, that that's a t that's so. a testament to your work though too because uh, i mean making a feature film is a little bit like going into a battle and it is uh it's a level of logistical non-creative work combined with all of the creative stuff that you really want to have your general your your or your your number one person your your dp well you know well versed and well into this and usually i want to say that when someone's making even a a lower budget movie it seems like they want the most experienced dps sort of the, that they can find out there the grizzled the oldest you're a young guy yeah i mean you're 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 a young guy and by evidence of this project you you did a bang up fantastic job so i want to say was there ever any sort of question where the money people the studio people do they ever go to you and go like uh we want someone who's been doing this for 20 years longer than that than you or, or were you just like the pick from the get-go and and good to go uh well thank you for saying all those kind words but i think yeah i have to say you know emerald is super confident uh super intelligent and she does know what she wants um the movie wasn't such a big budget that i don't think that came, I, it didn't come into question i never heard it and i think like em just really she did really respond to beast and she knew i think because we'd had that day on set mm. and i think this is something that is taken because emerald did say to me at that meeting she said you know i want to work with someone who i've been on set with before so everyone she was meeting was either people she'd and she's been an actress since she was 14. So she understands how sets run in that sense. It's still her, her debut feature. It's a daunting thing, you know, making your first film. So I think like that harmonious day that we had in some ways was really paramount because it showed that under a certain amount of stress in one location, we could, we sort of had a dialogue, you know, and it, it, it just felt natural. We had a shorthand that came across. And also she had just moved to the States uh, to prep that movie and then she was like gonna be moving there and I think she also wanted like a fellow Brit somehow to help it, just in terms of like you know when you're ending the day and you've had like a massive prep day or whatever and you just want to let off some steam and maybe you just want to like be sarcastic for about 20 minutes and you know there was a bit of that you know we were like we can you can tell me whatever you think right now and we can well, there was an honesty there, and I think 
a, a certain shorthand. And I think that was something that the producers were clever enough to see existed beyond like maybe both of our experience or whatever. But at exactly the same time, everyone left us to do our thing and we were able to create this piece, which I think is very... It has testament to the fact that it's not Emerald doing Tarantino or it's not Emerald doing Wes Anderson. This was very clearly from the beginning. We were like, how do we make your movie and how do we make it that it has your voice? Because so easily stuff can fall into those traps. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Of course. You've mentioned it's a low budget film. It doesn't feel low budget. And part of the way that I think movies really stand out as low budget could be a lack of quality in one or more technical aspects, which this this movie has has none. And also supporting cast. There's an incredible supporting cast of name actors, recognizable people who do really, really fantastic, nuanced performances in their roles, even if they're only in for a a scene or a couple of scenes. And quite often when you're looking at a low budget movie, you maybe have a name, maybe two, but not not this one. This one's filled with an incredible cast. And actually, I want to ask you, where did you shoot? I mean, there's a question coming in here. Is is this in L.A.? Was this shot in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah. So the original, original incarnation when I met Emerald that time, if I remember correctly, was actually going to be shot in Cleveland, Ohio because of the tax break. So in the States, you guys have this where someone opened, you know, a state will open up the tax break and that's where you're going to film because you get extra bang for your buck around there. So a lot of movies are shot there or everyone's in New Orleans. And I think like it was going to be there. Now the film, when I, just before I flew out, it moved to LA. Now we dropped, the budget dropped at that point. Oh, so wow. we lost money to shoot in LA. So, but, but this was clever, you see, on Emerald's part, Emerald and the producers, because they decided we're going to put the movie in LA because, you know what that gives you? We, we lose budget, but it gives us the chance to really get this cast nailed. And because of the script, it has this sort of form that like when she goes on her mission, you know, she's confronting each individual who's been involved in this serious incident with her best friend and like so you have this way of like you're going to have these day players and then you can really make them zing if you know most of them live in LA or they'll come in for a day but they're not going to fly to or you know what I mean and I think like that kind of really it basically exactly what you said it ups the kind of value of the film massively even though everyone knows it's quite tricky to shoot in LA and shooting this is all location as well it is sometimes locations built into locations or they'd be like the cafe was designed within a sort of industrial space but like we were on location every day and moving around LA it's also the film should kind of feel like everywhere suburbia really it shouldn't really feel like LA or New York or any of those things it should be a an other if you like so that that that's maybe why you get that feeling but yeah it was shot in LA well, I was going to say you did that very successfully because even the the moments and spots where I felt like that's L.A. or I've been there or that seems familiar. It was always enough that it, there wasn't big landmarks or what really wasn't standing out. L.A. was not playing itself. It did very much feel it, it could be generic suburbia in uh, points. And um, you had to frame out the um, palm trees. 
I would be framing out whenever there were palm trees. In exactly. And it's like, like yep, shouldn't shouldn't see those palm trees. Those palm trees. <laughs> have, yeah, that, that, that's going to give us away. Uh, I'm pleased to say that there's a little bit of early Oscar buzz for this movie. Like I'm hearing people like really, <laughs> re- re- really talk very highly of it. Now, granted, these are uh, L.A. folks and L.A. folks, I think, tend to really gravitate towards uh, darker fare. And I don't really know how the entire Academy and everyone else uh, will, will, will find it. But the initial buzz uh, behind it is really promising. And I think that there is almost like a catharsis that comes from a movie like this after after being locked up at home for a, a long length of time. I think that it seems to be at least the water cooler movie on people's lips at this moment. When I'm talking to people out there, they're talking about Promising Young Woman. And I think that if that really builds and continues, I mean, that I, I can only imagine it's, it's good things all around. Ha- have you been getting uh, phone calls of congratulations from people? Have you been getting a lot of uh, uh, attention over the last couple of months? What, what, what's, what's it like for you at this moment? It has been, yeah, I mean, I've, I have to say, like, since the premiere at Sundance, which was the last, it was actually one of the last full cinema rooms I was <laughs> been in, and I feel like the world is sort of, I'm just hoping that we can get back to that place, because this movie, like, that opening, you know, we'd never seen it, no one had seen it, we were all nervous as hell, you know what I mean, and, like, that room that evening was just, the sort of way the audience interacts with this movie is so special. But I knew then there was a point. There was a point at that crucial scene. And then the scene after that, straight after that, if the audience laughs, I just knew if they laughed in that scene, we had, it was like, this is going to work, you know? And like from that moment, I'm not saying like many things have happened since that moment, but I knew that Emerald had something like done something really special there. Because also... It's a movie, like you say, that demands a discussion afterwards. So I think on all those fronts, that's now starting. Like what's even on a small scale, I get phone calls from friends going like, I think this movie is really important. But they're not talking about like, oh, and they're saying like, I love your work and things like that. But they're going like, no, Ben, you need to take note. This is actually something. It's very, it's just an important film for a lot of people, especially younger age. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's just really special to me. And of course, on the other side of that, there's also like, you know, I did like a little interview with Seamus McGarvey. All my heroes are like phoning me up and things. So there's like all around it started to get really special. But I'm kind of I'm just happy that I was asked and I managed to get involved in this little gem of a movie, you know. Uh, Seamus is a good friend of the show. He's he's been on the show, and uh, I love every chance I, I can to somehow work his name into into a conversation. <laughs> so uh, so that's wonderful. That's great. I'm so, I'm so glad. Uh, but there's a couple of like there's a couple of of aspects and details that we really haven't discussed at all. And I, I almost don't want to go into them too much because I think that makes the movie more fun, but there's a notebook that almost is its own character in this movie. We see the notebook a lot and it gives the audience a window into Cassandra, into all of like sort of what's come before. Once you realize what the notebook is is all about, there's all these other stories and all these other sort of adventures that we get a little window into a couple of times throughout the movie. You play the the notebook in close up, in extreme close up. You you, you play it for for effect. Can you talk just a little bit about like uh, about where where those like in ECU? typically is a cutaway, a throwaway. This is not like, you know, big plot points of it or they want to cut away from it as quickly as possible. But no, this battered, bedraggled notebook is like a character. Can can you talk a little bit about what the intention was and how to make that part of the story? 
I mean, the main, the first thing there is to discuss Cassandra Thomas, who is someone who is very intelligent. She is very precise. She is meticulous. So these things are why she has this notebook. And this is sort of, this comes out, this sort of how precise she is, how meticulous she is. So it was everything about it, the scrunchie that she puts around it, the scr- there's everything, she'll, she'll have a routine as it were. If this is a routine as she goes out, then coming back home, getting the notebook from under her bed, taking it out, she probably does it in exactly the same spot. And in a way, they are, they are characters. Her fingernails are a character in the movie. These are things that we, Emerald, wanted to play. And I kind of love that sort of stuff in, in movies. I love that, like, I don't like the word cutaways because yeah. it's not a cutaway, you know what no. I mean? The word we should sort of get rid of. It, it, these are very, there is no cutaways. And then when people talk about, yeah, they say that, like, meat and potatoes. Everything is meat and potatoes. It's all the film. In fact, a film should be made of only solid shots thought about shots shots that are decided have been discussed have been because when i watch a movie i know when a film has been thought about and it's so fun to watch it's like uh, you know and that is the main if i watch tv and stuff and i go like people have just phoned this in i switch it off because i don't want to waste my time doing that you know what i mean so for me everything has to be as specific as the rest of it there's no difference there between her close-up and the notebook close-up. Amen, brother. That, that's, that's wonderful to hear. No, it, it really is. And uh, it does make such a difference. But I think that uh, here I'll editorialize for just a moment and I'll get right back on track. But, you know, in our distracted world of multiple screen viewing and everything else, uh, so much of what people watch has been reduced to the word content. And it's disposable and ephemeral. It'll wash over them and disappear and uh, never to be seen again. I think the Instagram storyification of, of life makes, I think, less attention perhaps be paid to the stuff that is really well thought out and really well put together. And I, I hope and pray that movies in particular and stuff that raises the art continues to be seen and to be appreciated and funded appropriately so that so that we can have proper enjoyable experiences that aren't a phone in so here i'm going to get off of my high horse and i really the sort of the last thing i want to talk about in this movie that uh, i think is going to get overshadowed quite a bit is that it's also a rom-com Sort of. It's sort of like, I don't see too many noirs that have elements of romantic comedy, uh, like, really ingrained into it. I mean, uh, Bo Burnham, he kind of comes in like this comedy grenade into the movie. Like, it's like, you know, he just kind of, like, explodes comedy here and there, and he's charming, and you're rooting for him. But at the same time, uh, Cassandra's character is is damaged, and you're not sure, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Where are the connections? How does this all, all come together? And yet it plays really really well and you're never in any of these sort of like rom-com moments going I need to get back to the A story I need to get back to the main story it is so (laughs) intertwined with everything else and I know that's a testament to the writing I know it's a testament to the directing but I don't believe that cinematographers get enough credit for pacing and perspective and all of the other things that that could make something that could so easily stick out and feel like something that's bolted on or not really well integrated because it's like, oh, okay, now we're into this and it's got a different look or it's got a different feel. No, all the stuff really feels uh, seamless. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you approach sort of the romantic comedy aspects to, to this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a testament to Emerald's writing, first of all. But you're right that it's like, again, coming back, I would approach it from where Cassandra is at that time. It's very important because Bo Burnham 
I mean, he's so funny. I had to, like, I think most of the time when Bo Burnham was on set, we just had to like stop ourselves laughing because he's like one of the funniest guys around. And he's also a wonderfully great charismatic actor. I was just like, oh my God. But like, the thing about that is, is I think, again, you could say Emerald's writing. You could also say like, Kerry is so good. And I think at these points, you really, really, really want Kerry to fall in love and let go and get rid of this sort of cynicism and this stuff. And I think like that, again, coming back to where's the character, what's happening here? How can the camera, and the camera can, like we became, there are actually some handheld moments in there, but they feel solid because you really want that to be. It's not like Carrie's not in that place and the film's trying to push it there. You know what I mean? We even begin, I think, that sequence with a wonderful, she's sort of stood in the cafe and there's that kind of mural and it's just round her. It's almost like an angel thing. You know what I mean? So again, we've played some notes before about like I'll pepper in these things of the avenging angel or some more psychological moments with the light coming up when she's on the computer and things like that. So by the time you get here, you're like, oh, this is another cycle. This is, she's changing slightly. That That's one of the pleasures of this movie though. It really is. The, the, the expected and unexpected playing against each other and really to find that pitch and balance is, is a real achievement. And if, if you're in the sound of my voice and you have not seen Promising Young Woman, you need to go see this. This is, uh, it, I know it's available right now and your friends are going to see it. They're going to be talking about it and you're going to want to talk about it with them. So Benjamin, uh, I think this just about wraps it up for us here. Where can people find you? Are you on the social web somewhere? Do you have an, an Instagram or a thing? Can, I mean, certainly they can watch this movie, but if someone wants to interact with you, is there, is there a way for them to... Uh, to find you on the web yeah they can do i've got an instagram it's ben kraken so they can find me there i've also got yeah and there's like links to the website and things like that yeah 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 benjamin thank you so much for being on the show and i can't wait to see what you do next thank you thank you so much for having me All right, that was Benjamin Kretchen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I can't wait to have you back again to do more stuff. That was that was so much fun. And once again, a little plug, if you haven't seen A Promising Young Woman, go see that. It's, it's good. And now, short ends. Ben, it's our famed short end time of the show. What's, uh, what's your obsession this week? What are you uh, obsessing I, on? I want to bring up something that our composer, Kazal Atrakshi, who is also, as we've said on here a thousand times, a, an amazing colorist, an amazing visual effects artist, on and on and on. Uh, something he brought to my attention, and it's a thing called Metahumans, hmm. which is, uh, if you were to go to unrealengine.com, it's part of Unreal Engine, which Unreal Engine, if you're not familiar with that, it is a video game engine that enabled us to uh, watch The Mandalorian. They, it was extensively used in The Mandalorian, and it's, I believe, free to download, and you can mess around with it, but uh, they know that filmmakers are using it now, so I'm sure that the pricing has changed. But basically, Unreal Engine enables you to make 3D, real-time, graphics card-driven landscapes, sets, blah, 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 like you would see in a video game. And, you know, if you've been paying any attention to video games or playing video games over the last 10 years, you've noticed a marked uptick in the quality of the graphics and the realism of the video games. So now they're making people. That's that that's that's the long and short of it. And it was uh it's been an ongoing debate 
for Kays and myself because he's like he keeps telling me over and over again and I'm not saying he's wrong that it's going to happen but he, he's been telling me that this kind of thing was going to happen and that filmmakers weren't going to need actors as long as they thought that they were and I was like no it just means that it's changing who's doing the acting if I have a fully riggable human within the Unreal Engine and I can imbue them with any performance I want I'm doing the acting <laughs> you know as opposed to uh, bringing in a trained actor. And I think my background, as I've talked about on here before, I've done a lot of theater and, you know, actors are, you know, to me, the most important part of pretty much any movie and any drama. Like, you know, I mean, it, it depends on what you're doing. You know, if, if you're making something that's purely, purely visual, then the actors are, you know, the acting is not as important. But if you go check it out and we can put a link in the show notes to uh, to this, they show some there's some demo footage you can look at and some some images and they look a lot like maybe a year or so ago there was that synthetic human stuff that people were like this this isn't a real person and it was it was a picture of someone who looked for all the world like a real person so they've basically taken that kind of idea and added movement and all kinds of other qualities to them when i look at them they still look kind of digital to me but i have no doubt that they'll be scaling down the slopes of the uncanny valley uh or up the slopes as it were uh, and maybe eventually looking more and more good. Maybe they're good for extras. You know, if you needed to fill a room with people and you didn't have people with which to fill the room, maybe that maybe this is a great way to do it. Maybe they're going to work well for stunts. You know, like if you uh, if you have to have uh, Tom Hanks. I don't know why I keep going to Tom Hanks. If you have to have Meryl Streep uh, jump off of a building and, you know, hit, hit seven awnings on the way down, it's better to do that with a digital person that looks for all the world like like. Like Meryl Streep, I, I've been saying for a long time that I feel like deep fake is maybe a better way to do a lot of that stuff where you could have a stunt person and then you could deep fake the actor's face onto them. But I have no doubt that we're going to be seeing metahumans popping up in all kinds of stuff just as soon as this technology is accessible to enough people for them to, uh, you know, dick around with it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And of course, the stuff that they're doing in video games is uh, is really interesting. And I, in the background, have had the MetaFace human demo sort of like playing as you were talking about it. And there is definitely Uncanny Valley. It's not photorealistic the way that some sort of deep fake and NVIDIA uh, deep learning machine vision type of uh, machine learning applications that are really creating genuinely derived from nothing, apropos of nothing, the, these uh, these humans that are photorealistic, but that require uh, a tremendous amount of uh, capability to be able to tell the difference. These are clearly something like you'd see in a video game, but I have a feeling that is certainly the world of animation. I think that maybe we're going to start to see animated stuff where we have animated characters and we're all just totally okay with it because the lip sync gets great and everything else happens and the uncanny valley is less valley, less, less of a valley, less of a grand canyon and more like a, a small crevasse. So well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. There was a movie that came out, I think it was called Simone and it came out in the early aughts, like 2001, 2002 and starred Al Pacino. And it was about a studio that created a completely digital movie star that wasn't a real person. Do you think that we're going to have that? Do you think that there's going to be like a movie star that's like the lead actor in a movie, but they don't exist? It's not using performance capture. It's not using anything. It's using algorithms to like, oh, okay, uh, I'd like, I, I, I wish that this character was more sad. And you bring up like a little slider and like slide, you know, keyframe sadness and, and keyframe sincerity and keyframe, you know, all, all the things that an actor would bring to something. Do you think that that ever happens? Well, we do have the digital influencer now, uh, 
Michaela, I think is how they pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. It's M I Q U E L A. She's super weird. And they did some sort of like growth hacking to get uh, millions of people to follow this. Uh, this, I mean, basically anyone out there who wants millions of followers can get it, but there are some people who do decide to follow this influence. Wait, I want millions of followers. How do I get millions of followers? I think it's just money. Uh, there, there's a really good, uh, there's oh. a really good, uh, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not paying money for well, that. I mean, there, there, there's a, there's a great, uh, documentary. It's like fake famous or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Fake famous. And, and it's totally worth watching. And yeah, sure enough, they go out and they decide that they're going to make some people popular and they just start buying, uh, you know, they start buying followers and likes for them and everything else but uh anyway yeah fake famous i think is exactly what it's called but there's also miku which in japan uh i think it's miku no maybe it's something like that though it's the virtual concert singer i don't know if you've seen that Mm -hmm. Uh, but the gimmick of those things is that they are they're fake i think this works when someone who doesn't exist hosts saturday night live Mm -hmm. or something when someone who doesn't exist is you know uh i was gonna say is in playboy but no one's in playboy anymore (laughs) um but like when we have someone who doesn't exist and we're all convinced that they're real it's not about the gimmick of it's a fake person it's a digital person that we're all following and being excited about it's when we're watching an interview with brad pitt and he starts glitching and then we realize he was never real yes to me that's that's the more interesting uh, scenario. It's also the one that I don't actually see ever, ever, ever happening. Ever, ever. Not my glitching uh, crazy idea here, but more the idea that we would actually believe that one of these synthetic CGI created people is a real person. And when, whenever, this is my, I, I should bring Kays on here because I feel like I'm having an unfair argument with him not here be, being here. Um, <laughs> does he, does he believe the opposite? Argument. Does he believe the opposite? That- uh, no, Kays, Kays completely believes that this is that we're headed that way where it's like you know you you want your character to walk a certain way you want your character to run a certain way well you'll have algorithms and sliders and programs and and captured actual human performances that you can apply to your digital character but to me all of that is it's just animation it's a high-tech version of making pinocchio act it pinocchio still needed somebody's voice and they needed an animator to do all the performance for them. So you maybe have a computer that can fill those things in. But what I know about plugins and pre-recorded stuff is like when you see, for instance, uh, Video Copilot, big fan here, uh, they released a thing called Action Essentials probably 10 years ago that's explosions and smoke and blood and all kinds of glass and all these effects that are keyed out and ready to use. When I see them you on them. network yeah. television... All the time when I see them, I'm like, I know that blood splatter yeah. and it's I'm not even joking. <laughs> I've I've spotted it more than once because it's some of it's very distinctive. Oh, yeah. And I feel like the, the high tech version of that is with these. It's like, OK, that's the walk that they took from this character. And that's the facial expression from this character. And you're going to start seeing how it feels cobbled together out of. Uh, pieces parts made of other digital assets I, I assure you though right now there are people who work in sound and they immediately hear bbc sound library uh number three oh, yeah. uh, you know a clip number 412 of the car door opening and closing or or like the water the faucet dripping it's like uh, you hear the same stuff used all the time and it's most people who aren't looking to pay attention to that they, they don't hear those things that's like you know that's how the magic is made that's how the sausage is made it's all behind the curtain uh it's the same thing with like the wilhelm scream that's probably the most famous sound effect out there and now you hear the Wilhelm scream everywhere so well and the other thing too by the way and you bring up sound I think it's important is there are really great synthetic voice synthesizers but I don't believe in my heart of hearts and maybe I'm just an old man clutching to my old man ways 
when I say this, but I don't think I am, is that you can make a synthetic voice that could like guide you through a phone tree and get you to your extension. I don't think you're going to have a synthetic voice that's going to emotionally move you one way or the other. Welcome to Movie get... Phone. Press wall. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That was a real voice. Uh, no, but you're. But I feel like you're not going to have a synthetic Meryl Streep voice. You're not going to have uh, a synthetic Viola Davis voice. You're not going to get all of the nuances and touches that you get out of those people unless you bring in real people to do it. And again, then it's just, it's not getting rid of acting or making actors obsolete. It's just changing who's doing it. And I feel like if you're expecting the, you know, no matter how realistic the computer makes the skin around their eyes wrinkle when they're sad or, you know, makes their, their nostrils flare or whatever, like these little micro expressions that you don't even realize when they're happening. uh, I feel like it's, it's something that I will believe it when I see it and I will happily say I was wrong, but I don't believe that we're headed towards an era of anything more than digital extras. That's my opinion. Hmm. Okay. Uh, at, and, and stunt people. I, I'm going to withhold judgment because I don't know. I have no idea. I, I, I won't, uh, I won't pick a side on this one. I feel also like at the point where we get to that, where it's like people would rather watch that than watch a movie with real actors having real scene work with real emotion. My work here will be done. Like I'm not interested in making, I'm not here to make cartoons and that's a glib way to write it off. But like, I'm not that interested in that version of the process. Yeah, that's fair. Totally fair. And I I think that you're, you know, there's a good chance you're right about that. A hundred percent. Yeah. We'll see. Time will tell. Anyway, so Ilya, what is your short end this week? Well, you know, I had a short end, but uh, I actually think I want to change it now to Fake Famous, because I think Fake Famous deserves to be seen. And uh, I know it got a little bit of negative pushback from uh, BuzzFeed and places out there claiming that, like, oh, the documentary is condescending to influencers. I don't think it's quite so condescending as it is just shining a light of some of the realities you don't really get to see. And like, for example, there's a uh, giving nothing away here. There's a bus trip in which a whole bunch of influencers all go on this bus to Las Vegas and they don't really interact with each other. They basically just spend all their time on their individual phones. And I think that um, there's a, there's a certain amount of truth to that. And I have been at a couple of different sort of influencer events uh, related to the camera industry. And it wasn't exactly like that, but I'd say that there was certainly an element of antisocial behavior amongst the, uh, amongst all the people there because uh, they were there to uh, perform for their audiences. They weren't there necessarily to have human interactions with other people. So I think that's so weird. Yeah. I think that it's just such a weird thing and it's all enabled by smartphones. Like it's just so weird to think that one little piece of technology, which is obviously an enormous piece of technology, just fundamentally, it creates careers for, armies of people to do stuff like this and, and what's really interesting is when you go down deeper uh, because there's some of this stuff starting to come here too it's like we're not even uh the culture or society that is so um so enamored with these devices and so enamored with influencers if you look at china and what china is doing like building cities of influencers like no joke like getting people like oh your career is influencer you're going to go live in the city and the whole city is built around them influencing people it's really that is like a dystopian novel it right is there. i mean that, it really it's, is that's a crazy idea there, there's there's some crazy documentary stuff out there about this and uh they're not shying away from it they're you know there's they're embracing it to a degree that thankfully we haven't done here but at the same time, uh, I don't know what the future will hold. And I don't really know how many people really want to uh, be influenced by someone whose job it is to be an influencer and not actually to be an expert 
in anything else out there. Like really, they're not an expert in cooking or clothing or anything else. They're just an influencer for that, that, that thing that they try to influence on. And I I truly actually, I don't want influence from those people. I want, I want to hear from authority. I want to hear from people who like they've dedicated their, their life and time. That's because you're an old man. Yeah, I know. Shut up old man. Yeah. I I should, (laughs) I I should have uh, different feelings about this. I should, uh, yeah. Want some, I think it's hilarious by the way that Buzzfeed was critical of this. Yeah, I know. know, Frankenstein, (laughs) Dr. Frankenstein going after Frankenstein's monster. (laughs) I would like to read the article because I hear the, the third fact will amaze me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, influencer culture is an interesting thing. So, uh, yeah, and, and in Fake Famous, it's basically the movie's just an experiment in taking people who aren't influencers at all and just propping them up and using tools that are available to make randos into into influencers. And, like, and they do it. Genuine influence. Uh, and, and they do it. And it, it really, it's like... Anyone out there who wants to put in that time and effort, and I really do feel like anyone who really wants to do that can achieve those same sorts of results. But my real question is why? I mean, I guess for some people, that's that's their dream. Uh, it, it, well, you can make money. Uh, well, I mean, yes, that's it, why it's, it's you can make a lot of money. It scares me now when I hear that, uh, like the the number like one or two job that high school graduates now say is that they want to be, you know, YouTube star influencer, that sort of thing, because it's like uh, there's an awful In lot my of those day, we uh, wanted to be rock stars and movie makers. <laughs> I think there's still a few of those, but they're they're way down the list now. I think it's probably yeah. like around 20 or 25 from the from the from the top ranks. Yeah, the heat's off. The heat's off filmmakers. Yeah, professional video um, gamer. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting culture that's kind of. I mean, when you think about it, though, it's like all enabled by specific technology. So like the video, the people who do the video game stuff, that was enabled by YouTube. And YouTube was, you know, a, a piece of technology that spawned, uh, didn't didn't create the term content, but maybe widely spread the idea that uh, the the stuff you're watching is the garbage and the real genius is in the platform. And it, it kind of turned, you know, it would be like if movie theaters referred to movies as content. Yeah, it would, it would make me really mad. Well, it's like you're not you're not making content. You're making movies. I didn't go to content school, but um, but just you at, wait. at the same time. <laughs> but I, I do think that it, it, it's uh, it's a very generational thing. I remember the first time I watched somebody filming themselves play video games and realized that they were making you know millions of dollars doing so. I had the exact response that my father had when I played him the Beastie Boys when I was in middle school. Mm. You know, it's just like you know he was like, "That's not music," and I was watching that stuff and I was like, "This isn't filmmaking," <laughs> and and it's not. It's, it's not. a different it's, thing. It's a different thing. I, yeah. I mean, like. You know, anything can be entertainment, and I've certainly watched a lot of stuff that makes no sense to anyone as entertainment, but, you know, a select group of people, and uh, I'm, I'm not down on those people. I, I will say, and I'm not going to say who they were or what the job was for, but I once had a project that I was working on where I had to shoot three influencers. Mm. I had to follow three influencers around for part of a day while they introduced stuff. One of them was like ready to host her own television show. She was pro camera ready. She knew how to work the camera. She was charismatic. She was smart. She was fast on her feet. It was kind of man on the street stuff. The other two were just like useless <laughs> and could not could not hold one sentence. I'm I'm not kidding. They had to say one sentence to introduce a thing. Couldn't remember it. I'm like, how? Why? What? You know, and they were chosen by a big company because they had a giant following. And I I found it 
kind of shocking. But again, I'm not going to go into any more detail. Than uh, that. I, I feel very I, I think it's never been harder for actors who, who really want to act. I, I hear more and more now from people that their Instagram follower count is a thing that's expected to be on their resume now. Instagram, Twitter. Yeah. I'm sure TikTok is figuring into it. The flip of that is like, I know this guy named Michael Rayner, who's a juggler mm. and he's making some money on TikTok doing crazy juggling videos. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. Um, and you can uh, make money on TikTok. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't, didn't realize that. I thought, I thought, yeah, yeah. Well, well why am why am I not there then? I should, I should be there immediately. Uh, I have opened TikTok and now Michael Rayner is older than I am, uh, and figured it out somehow, but I've opened TikTok and kind of, poked around in it a little bit and thought this isn't for me this is for someone else <laughs> i hope that person finds it and enjoys it but i'm not going to get into this turns out it's will smith um, will smith's really big there now so god bless anyone uh, like i'm just happy for anyone who can find the right platform for what they do i don't believe that youtube or tiktok or instagram or snapchat like none of those things are really replacing the film industry and i also i have noted repeatedly that when people get big enough on those platforms, what do they want to do? They want to go they to the movie make industry. Movies. That's right. They want, they want to go. Make- yeah. I, I, uh, I think I, I probably talked about it on here at one point, but there's a huge YouTube channel called Smosh and I got to interview to direct one of their movies. And I asked them the, the two guys, Ian and Anthony, like, you know, what's the, what's the goal here? And they're like, well, we want to broaden our audience. And I think, I think that's fair. But their audience consisted between all of their channels at the time of 60 million subscribers. Yeah. Like you're not broadening the audience. You're focusing the audience if you go make a movie. I'm, and I'm not poo-pooing anything that they do. I just thought it was it, it was interesting because if you have 60 million people who every time you post a new thing are maybe not like running to see. Not all 60 million are like, oh, my God, I got to watch it right now. But maybe 20 million. That's still you're doing better than primetime television. Oh, yes. Uh, one of our clients we built a studio for, Good Mythical Morning, is up to 17 million subscribers. And oh. uh, I mean, they, they post uh, such videos. I know, as, I know one of the producers on oh, that, actually. Oh, they, they post videos that compare the taste of like fountain soda versus bottled soda versus canned soda. But, you know, 17 million people are, are, are watching that stuff. So it's it's never about the thing that they're talking about. It's always about the personality. That's exactly and, right. And I think yeah. that's what differentiates it from movies. And frankly, I feel like that's one of the things that differentiates it even from podcasts. hundred uh, 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 percent. Is, is that it's so personality driven. And that's cool. Anyway, we've gone way off topic again. <laughs> you're, you're right. So we should wrap it up. We've, we've been yakking for a long time. Then let's thank some people. Let's thank some people for this show. Uh, yeah. Well, firstly, let's thank Kazal Atrakchi for pointing me to the metahumans. I'm uh, very interested in... Uh, and seeing where that eventually goes. And I'm sure that I'll probably before anything else, I'll see them pop up in cases films and they will be brilliantly animated and most importantly, color corrected extremely expertly. There might even be some decent um, music behind it and, and well lit yeah. anyway. So let's thank Kays. Let's thank Ben Katz, our uh, intrepid hardworking uh, editor who is tasked with making us not sound like dummies. Tough job. And uh, lastly, but never leastly, giant thanks to Alana Cody for basically keeping the wheels on the locomotive here and uh, getting us uh, lining up some amazing interviews as she, as she continues to do and uh, keeping us on track. All right. Well, Ben, where can people find you? If they want to uh, get more of the Ben Rock experience. You know, I've been I've been noticing a lot of people uh, adding me on LinkedIn and Facebook who are camera people. So I'm guessing that they're maybe finding me through here. But please go to BenRockOnline.com. And that is the easiest place to find me. All my social medias are on there and you can see some of my work and, uh, you know, even look at pictures of me. If, you, if you're really that excited about you can you can see me in action. <laughs> 
How about yourself, Illy? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, HotRodCameras.com, sponsor of the show. We uh, we sell gear. We sell equipment. and We dabble here and there in other things, but mostly we, we sell gear. That's what we do. Dabble in other things like are you working on a, on well, a YouTube and we build some stuff oh. and we, you know we're, we we yeah I, I you know we we invent products every once in a while and stuff like that so oh, okay I was hoping that you were making a chicken sandwich chicken sandwich is pretty exciting but no that's not sorry I can't can't help you with the chicken sandwich You'll all right to. well uh, <laughs> thank you again for listening to us and we will see you next week at the cinematography podcast thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.